female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Welcome back, guys, gals, and my non-binary pals to Man It Is, the only true crime podcast on the internet, and welcome to our 50th episode. Yeah, the big 5-0. Celebrate, play some funky music, white boy. Everyone have a little dance. I don't care where you are. Have a little dance, you at work. Dance in your head, I guess. I don't want your boss knowing that you listen to me. Uh, it, it displays bad judgment, honestly. If you listen to me at work, uh, bad. Uh, if you listen to me at all, it's not a great indicator of what kind of person you are. But anyway, we are here. 50 episodes, the big five zero. If this podcast was a person, 50 years, uh, not that every episode is a year long, um, but you'd be 50, you would have a, a, wife, a wife, maybe two, some kids, maybe one of them would died, I don't know, I don't know what kind of a parent you would have been, are you an attentive parent, are you a good father, a good mother, I don't know. I don't know what kind of person you are, uh, but we have done it. Thank you so much for joining us on a very special episode. I'm really excited about today's episode. I've picked a good one. 50, 50th episode, it deserves a good topic. And as alluded to in the previous few episodes, we are talking about the Tiger of Chalgar, a uh, terrifying beast that terrorized people and killed dozens uh, in India. We're going to talk a lot about that. It is a Jim Corbett story. Those of you who have been with the podcast since the very beginning, since episode one, you would know who Jim Corbett is, probably the most famous of all big hat hunters, uh, took down the chump white tiger, took down the leopard of Rudra Prayag, and again, he did take down the tiger of Chalga. So before we jump into it today, I just want to say uh, a, a sincere, an actual sincere uh, thank you for joining us. Um, 50 episodes, you know, it's not a lot in the grand scheme of the universe, but uh, for this little guy with this little podcast microphone, uh, it does mean the world. Uh, and so, yeah, th- I just want to say thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. If you've listened to every episode, I don't know if anyone has done that. But if you have, <laughs> wow, wow, that's dedication. You just, you must have a lot of free time uh to to waste on a on a on a show like this uh but yeah you know it's it's been a it's been a few years since this uh this here little podcast started uh way back in 2021 and yeah our first episode was about the chump white tiger and you will notice some uh, interesting similarities between these two stories uh the tiger of chowgar is the story we are tackling today and so let's just jump right into it Okay, so allow me to set the scene for you. Let's play some uh, some douchey podcast, douchey true crime music. Go. Yeah, excellent. Very nice. Oh, ooh, I feel more professional already. So, it's the mid-1920s in British-controlled India. In the Kamoan region, villages are scattered throughout the mountains and forested landscapes. Some villages had populations as large as a few hundred, while others had just one or two families. In the place of telephones or even shortwave radios, the locals implement a rudimentary but effective communication technique to talk to one another across the jungle. Standing on a tall rock or the roof of a house, a man would shout, Cooey! and would wait for a response. 
When the response was made, the men would shout as loud as they can in a high-pitched voice. These voices would carry further if the air was dry, but even on a humid day, this technique was enough to allow effective communication between the villagers. In 1926, this calling system was used to relay a warning. A warning that a deadly killer had made the jungle surrounding the villages its home. A deadly serial killer that when all was said and done would leave 64 men, women and children in the Khmoan region of India dead and many others gravely wounded. Today we are talking about the Chalgar Tiger, a Bengal tiger that stalked villages and terrorized locals for over four years. We are also talking about the man who was finally able to bring this beast down at great threat to his own life. So as you have heard in this introduction, this is another Indian big cat story. Uh, because we are talking about uh, a story that's occurred in India, there are going to be a lot of Indian place names. Uh, I'm going to do my best, but please, I, I'm clearly not Indian. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just not. I'm sorry. Uh, but I will do my best. I've phonetically written as much as I could out. Um, but yeah, like if, if, if you're from India, which some of the listeners are, uh, and I mispronounce something, please, I apologize. Uh, this white boy is trying to do his best. So we've talked all about the, the locations that this place started. And we've talked previously about the man who would bring this big cat to justice, Jim Corbett. Uh, but these two, um, this man and this place is going to combine into one of the most terrifying, uh, man stories I've ever heard. Um, you cannot underestimate how terrifying this animal was to the people in these villages. It was terrorizing everybody. Um, people wouldn't work. People were afraid to go out by themselves. Children were, you know, in massive danger almost all the time. There was no military or police force in the region that could counter this kind of threat. Um, and so really the villagers had to take it upon themselves to defend themselves, um, but they were not having much luck. Uh, and they were lucky that Jim Corbett uh, had chosen the the, uh, the tiger of Chowgar as his next target. So our source today is a book called The Man Eaters of Camoan. It's the first-hand account of Jim Corbett, who not only killed the, Char uh, the Chowgar tiger, but also killed the Chumpwat tiger, the leopard of Panar, and the leopard of Rudra Prayag, all stories that we've covered on this podcast before. The Man Eaters of Camoan is the most well-known of all Corbett's book and is required reading for any true crime animal nerd like me. You can get it on Amazon, which is where I got it, uh, and you can get it as an ebook as well if you prefer, or you can get it in a hard copy or a soft, uh, soft cover copy. I got the soft cover copy, and I really like it. Uh, it's a terrific book. I really recommend it. It is fantastic. It's got ten stories um, that I'm sure we will cover in the future, but today we are focusing on the quite large chapter dedicated to the Chowgar Tiger. So, Corbett begins his recount of these events by detailing a map of Eastern Camoan region which hangs on his wall. The map is marked with a series of crosses and below each cross is a date. The crosses indicate the locality, date and official recorded number of human fatalities of the man-eating tiger of Chowgar. There are 64 crosses on the map in total. Corbett doubts the veracity of the total being accurate as it doesn't account for the deaths that did not go reported or people who were mauled and died later of infection. The first cross is dated 15 December 1925 and the latest from 21st of March 1930. The area containing the crosses is 1500 miles squared and covers a brutal environment. 
Snow covers the ground in the winter and in summer the temperature soars to an extreme high. It was in 1929 when Jim Corbett first committed to hunting and killing the Chowgar Maneater. He'd been keeping track of threats in the region and had confirmed the existence of three man-eating tigers or leopards in the Camoan region at the same time. They were all operating at the exact same time in the exact same place. However, the Chowgar tiger was by far the most prolific and so he decided that that was the animal he would hunt for first. Corbett's first port of call was a bungalow in Kala Agar Forest. This location was selected as the crosses on the map indicated that the tiger was most active in the villages on the north and east face of Kalar Aga Ridge. After a four-day hike, culminating? How do I say that word? I wrote it. Cumulating. After a four-day hike, cumulating in a harsh 4,000-foot climb off a cliff, Corbett arrived in April of 1929. The last victim of the tiger was a 22-year-old farmer who had been mauled and eaten while grazing his cattle. The man's grandmother, his only living relative, visited Corbett the day of his arrival. The grandmother, after telling him of her grandchild's life story and speaking highly of his virtues, offered Jim three of her cattle for him to use as bait for the tiger. Now, even though he knew that these cattle were of no use to him, as he already had live bait, he graciously accepted. The grandmother felt that if she was able to assist in the hunt, even vicariously through the cattle, she would have avenged her only family member left on planet Earth. Jim accepted and met the leaders of nearby villages. It was now and here that he learned that the tiger had recently been spotted in a village 20 miles away where the tiger had mauled, killed, and eaten a man and his wife. The quantity of crosses in Dalkinia and the surrounding villages had suggested the tiger's headquarters were in the neighborhood of these settlements. Corbett left Kalaagar after breakfast and followed the fall road, which he was told would take him to the end of the ridge, where he would have to quit the road and take a trail two kilometers downhill to Dalkania. This road, which ran straight to the end of the ridge through deep woodland, was seldom used, and he reached the point where the path turned off at approximately 2pm after scrutinizing it for tracks as he went. Jim met a number of men from Dalkinia here. They had learned of his intention to camp in their village by the Kui Way of Morning Contact and had come up the ridge to alert him that the tiger had attacked a group of ladies while they were cutting their crops in a community 10 miles north of Dalkinia. The men carrying his camp equipment had travelled 8 miles and were eager to continue, but after learning from the villagers that the path to this village 10 miles away was very rough and ran through dense forests, Jim decided to send his men to Dalkinia with the villagers and visit the scene of the tiger's attack alone. Jim's faithful servant immediately began cooking him a large meal, and at 3pm he started out on a 10-mile walk, having fortified himself. 10 miles is a nice two and a half hour walk in good weather, but the weather was anything but good here. The path that ran along the east face of the hill wound in and out through deep ravines and was bordered alternatingly, alternatingly, that's a better way to say it, by rocks, dense undergrowth, and trees, and because every obstacle was capable of concealing sudden death in the form of a hungry man-eating tiger, it had to be approached with caution. Progress was forced to be slow. 
He was still many miles from his destination when the setting sun signaled that it was time for him to stop. Jim states that in any other situation, sleeping under the stars on a bed of dry leaves would have assured a quiet night, but in this case, sleeping on the ground would have meant courting death in the most miserable way possible. Extensive practice in locating a good tree and arranging himself comfortably in it had made sleeping aloft a breeze. On one occasion, Jim chose an oak tree and had been sleeping for several hours with the rifle firmly secured to a limb when he was awoken by the stirring of various creatures under the tree. The sound faded and then he heard claws scraping across bark and realised it was a family of bears climbing some carpal trees he'd observed growing a little bit down the road. During eating, bears are highly fractious and sleep was difficult until they'd gotten their full and moved on. When Jim finally arrived at the settlement, which comprised of two cottages and a cattle shed in a five-acre clearing surrounded by woodland, the sun had been up for a couple of hours. The tiny town was in complete panic and was glad to see him. The wheat field, a few yards from the huts, was anxiously pointed out to Corbett, where the tiger, belly to the ground, had been discovered only barely in time stalking three people harvesting the grain. The man who had seen the tiger and reported it to Jim said that the tiger had withdrawn into the bushes where it had been joined by another tiger, and that the two animals had descended into the hillside in the valley below. The inmates of the two shelters got little sleep since the tigers, balking of their prey, had called at short intervals all night and had just stopped calling a few minutes before his arrival. This assertion that there were two tigers supported previous accounts that the man-eater was joined by a fully-fledged cub. It was at this point that Corbett's suspicions of that not just being a tiger of Chowgar, but tigers of Chowgar that he was hunting. When the locals discovered that Corbett had spent the night in the bush and that his camp in Dalkinia, they offered to make food for him. He realised, however, that this would put a burden on the little community's resources, so all he asked for was a cup of tea. But, being none in the hamlet, he was given a drink of fresh milk, sweetened to excess with jaggery, an apparently gratifying and not unpleasant drink when one gets used to it. Jim Corbett mounted guard at the request of his hosts while the remaining wheat harvest was cut, and at midday, carrying the well intentions of the people with him, he proceeded down the valley in the area where the tigers had been heard calling. Now, in this sentence, I'm going to read a few Indian places. Let's see how I go. The valley stretches southwest for 20 miles, beginning at the confluence of the three rivers, Ladhya, Nanduau, and Eastern Gula. That wasn't too bad. Tracking was difficult, and his only chance of sighting the tigers was to lure them himself or be assisted in stalking them by jungle dwellers. In his book, Jim Corbett says... Those of you who are interested in man-eater hunting on foot will be interested to know that the birds and the animals of the jungle, as well as the four winds of heaven, play an essential role in this type of sport. This is not the place to name the jungle folk on whom alarm calls and the sportsman relies on for his safety and knowledge of his quarry's movements, for in a country where a three or four mile walk upwards or downhill can mean a thousand foot difference in altitude, the variation in fauna in a well-socked area is significant. The wind, on the other hand, remains a constant influence at all heights, and a few comments about its significance in relation to man-eater hunting on foot would be appropriate. 
Tigers are unaware that humans have no sense of smell, and when a tiger becomes a man-eater, it treats humans the same way it would wild animals, approaching its victims upwind or lying in wait for them downwind. The significance of this becomes clear when it is acknowledged that when the athlete trying to detect the tiger, the tiger is most likely stalking him or lying in wait for him. Because of the tiger's height, colour and ability to move without making a sound, this match would be exceedingly uneven if it wasn't for the wind helping the hunter. The victim is approached from behind in all incidents of stalking or stealth killing. Given this, it would be deadly for the sportsman to penetrate the deep forest where he had every reason to assume a man-eater lurked unless he was fully capable of fully using the air currents. For example, if the sportsman had to proceed in the direction from which the wind was blowing because of the nature of the ground, the danger would be behind him, or he would at least be able to deal with it by frequently tracking across the wind, he could keep the danger alternately to the right and left of him. This strategy may not look appealing in text, but in practice and short walking backwards, Corbett states that he's unaware of a better or safer means of getting upwind through deep cover when a hungry man-eater lurks. By that evening, Corbett had reached the top end of the valley without seeing the tigers or receiving any sign of their existence in the bush from birds or other animals. The only habitation visible at the time was a cattle shed high up on the valley's north side. On this second night, he chose a tree with care and was rewarded with a peaceful night's sleep. The tigers called not long after midnight, and a few minutes, off, and a few minutes later, Two muzzle-loading bullets echoed down the valley, followed by a lot of yelling from grazers at the cattle station. The night fell silent after that. Jim had toured the whole valley by the afternoon of the next day, and he was making his way up a grassy hill to meet the men at Dalkinia when he heard a long-drawn-out cooey from the direction of the cattle shed. The cooey was repeated several times, and as he returned an answer and cried, Jim observed a man standing on a projected rock and yelling across the valley, asking whether Corbett was the sahib who had come from Nani Tal to shoot the man-eater. When he told him that he was the sahib, he told Jim that his cattle stampeded out of a ravine on his side of the valley around lunchtime, and that when he counted them when he got them back to the cattle station, one, a white cow, was missing. The cattle grazer assumed that the cow had been slaughtered by the tigers as he heard calling the night before, half a mile to the west of where they stood. Jim thanked him for assistance and started to inspect the ravine. He'd only gotten a short distance along the ravine's edge when he came across the stampeding cattle's tracks and followed these tracks back, he had no trouble finding the spot where the cow had been killed. The tigers had transported the cow down the steep mountain into the ravine after killing it, an approach along the drag was not advised, so he took a large detour down the valley and approached the place where he thought the kill to be from the opposite side of the ravine. The side of the ravine was less steep than others, and it was thick with young bracken making it ideal for stalking. Corbett moved through the bracken, which extended over his waist, step by step and softly as a shadow, when he was about 30 yards from the ravine's bed, a movement in front of him grabbed his attention. A white leg was thrust up into the air and violently agitated, and the next thing Jim knew, there was a deep-throated growl. The tigers were on the kill, and had had a disagreement over, as Jim puts it, some toothful morsel. Jim stood completely motionless for several minutes, and the leg remained agitated, but the growls did not return. 
A closer approach was not advised, since even if he managed to travel 30 yards without being noticed and kill one of the tigers, the other would almost certainly be on him in an instant, and the ground he was on would offer him little chance of defending himself. There was a 10 to 15 hood outcrop of granite 20 yards to his left and approximately the same distance from the tigers. If he could get to this rock without being observed, he felt like he would have an easy shot at the tigers. Falling to his knees and shoveling the rifle ahead of him, Jim called through the bracken to the safety of the rocks, took a minute to catch his breath and double checked that the weapon was fully loaded and locked. He then mounted the rock. He looked over when his eyes were level with the top and he saw two large Bengal tigers. One was devouring the cow's hindquarters while the other was resting nearby licking its paws. Both tigers looked to be about the same size, but the one licking its paws was many shades lighter than the other, and judging from that pale colouring was due to age, and that she was the elderly man-eater, the most deadly of the two. Jim carefully centred his sights on her and fired. She reared up and fell backwards at the shot, while the other tiger dashed down the gully and was out of sight before he could pull the second trigger. The tiger he had shot did not move, and after pelting it with stones to ensure it was dead, Jim approached and was met with great disappointment. At a glance, at close quarters, it revealed that he had made a mistake and shot the cub, not the mother. A seemingly innocuous mistake, but the mistake would cost the lives of 15 people over the next 12 months, and quite nearly cost him his own. His disappointment was mitigated to some extent by the realisation that even if this younger tiger had not killed any humans itself, it had most likely assisted her old mother in killing, an assumption he would later discover to be correct, and in any case, having raised on human flesh, it could be classified as a potential man-eater. Skinning a tiger with assistance on open ground and with the necessary tools is a simple task, but here, Jim was alone. He was surrounded by thick cover, and his only tool was a penknife, and while there was no actual danger of being apprehended by the man-eater, because tigers never kill in excess of their requirements, there was the uneasy feeling that in the back of his mind, the tiger would return to the scene of the crime, and was watching his every move. The sun was sinking when the difficult work was accomplished, and because he would have to spend another night in the jungles, he chose to stay put. The tigress was a very old animal, as evidenced by her pug marks, and having spent her whole existence in an area with about as many firearms as men to use them, she'd had n- she had learned she had to have learned about mankind and their customs. Even so, there was a chance she would return to the scene throughout the night and stay up until lights came up in the morning. Jim's options for trees were limited, and the one he spent the night in turned out to be the most uncomfortable tree he would ever spend 12 hours in. The tigress called at regular intervals throughout the night, becoming fainter and fainter as daylight approached. Ultimately faced on the ridge above him, he was cramped, stiff and hungry. Jim hadn't eaten in 60 hours, and with his clothes clinging to him as it had rained for an hour during the night, he descended from the trees where objects were clearly visible, when objects were clearly visible, and after tying the tiger's skin up in a coat, he set off for Dalkinia. I, he... Jim said he had never weighed a tiger's skin when it was green, and if the skin plus the head and paws which he carried for 15 miles that day weighed 40 pounds at the start, he would have taken an oath that it weighed more than 200 pounds before he reached his destination. In a courtyard, flagged with great slabs of blue slate and common to a dozen houses, 
Jim found his men in conference with a hundred or more villagers. His approach, along with a yard-wide lane between two houses, had not been observed, and the welcome he received when, bed-dragging and covered in blood, he staggered into the circle of squatting men will live in his memory as long as his memory lasted. Jim's 40-pound tent had been pitched in a stubble field a hundred yards from the hamlet, and he hadn't even arrived before tea was served out for him on a table created from a pair of suitcases borrowed from the community. The villagers later told him that his men, who had been with him for years and had accompanied on many similar expeditions, had kept a kettle on the boil night and day in anticipation of his return, and had vehemently opposed the headmen of Dalkinia and the adjoining villagers to send a report to Almora and Nani Tal that Corbett was missing. A hot bath, taken out in the open and in full view of the villagers, since he was too dirty and exhausted to care who saw him, was followed by what he described as an adequate meal, and he was about to retire for the night when a flash of lightning, followed by a loud clap of thunder, proclaimed the arrival of a storm. Tent pegs are useless in a field, therefore long stakes were immediately obtained and securely hammered into the ground, and tent ropes were fastened to these stakes. All available ropes in camp were crisscrossed over the tent and attached to the pegs for further security. The wind and rainstorm lasted for an hour and was one of the worst the small tent had ever seen. Many guide ropes were ripped from their canvas, but the pegs and crisscross ropes remained secure. Most of the belongings were soaked through and a small stream several inches deep ran from end to end of the tent. On his, his bed, on the other hand, was relatively dry, and by 10 o'clock the men were safely locked behind locked doors and the houses of the villagers had placed at their disposal, while Jim settled down to a well-deserved 12-hour sleep. The next day was spent drying his gear and scrubbing and pegging out the tiger's hide. As these procedures were taking place, the villagers who had taken a break from their field labour flocked to hear Jim's stories and tell him theirs. Every man in the village had at least one relative who had seen or been attacked by the tiger, and some even carried teeth and claw scars inflicted by the man-eater, which they will take to their graves. His remorse at having missed out on slaying the man-eater was not shared by the gathering men. It was true that there was only one man-eater at first, but in recent months, rescue teams going out to discover the remains of human victims discovered two tigers on the kill. And only after a fortnight before that, a man and his wife had been killed simultaneously, which was proof for them that both tigers were established man-eaters. His tent was perched on a ridge overlooking the valley. Directly below was the Nandor village, with a barren slope rising to a height of 9,000 feet on the far side. The villagers pointed out the exact locations where 20 people had been slain in the previous three years as Jim stood at the edge of the terrace fields that evening with a set of decent binoculars in his hand and a government-issued map spread out beside him. The Tigress of Chowgar had eluded Jim Corbett and would go on to kill a dozen more people before Jim and the Tiger would cross paths again for their fatal final meeting. That night, Corbett made a promise to himself that he would track down and kill the Tigress of Chowgar once and for all. And that is we will, where we will pick up next week for part two, the conclusion of our small series on the Tiger of Chowgar. A fascinating tale about a man uh, against all odds, tack tackling not just one man-eater, but two by himself. Uh, 
as stated in the story, you know, he thought he was taking out the older tiger, which was the more deadly of the two. Um, but yes, he did make a mistake and he killed the tiger's cub, uh, which was a fully grown cub. So that means it would have been at least three or four years, I believe, old. Um, the older tiger, of course, the more dangerous one, been killing people for years. But uh, he was vindicated to know that the younger tiger was indeed a man-eater as well, and had killed people on its own volition. Uh, but yes, it was a mistake that would end the lives of many people, and as we will learn next week, it nearly killed him as well. So next week we will cover the conclusion of this story, Jim's hunt for this uh, deadly tiger, tiger cub, that would kill at least 12 more people, and also nearly kill him. We'll also talk a little bit about a side quest that Jim had. How fun is that? A little, a little cute side quest. Uh, where Jim tackles, I think, a, uh, a leopard who is also giving the, uh, the the villagers some gruff. Yeah, so some really interesting stuff there. I'm sure you can glean from that um, story there that the, um, the Manages of Kamoan, a fantastic book, and I think that what after we do this series, I'm going to have to go back and read the whole thing because there is so much information in there about the other stories that we've covered that we may it may be time already to go back and revisit some of these earlier stories that we tackled, even the first one on the Chompawat Tiger, and uh, yeah, go back over it and uh, see what we missed. Because this first-hand account, it's honestly so, so useful. It's, it's full of information. I think it's really important when doing research to be wary of first-hand accounts, um, because obviously the people writing the book have full editorial control of what happens, and you can't always 100% take their word for it. It is, it is important to um, have a mix of you know, first and second-hand uh, reports. However, Jim Corbett, by all accounts uh, throughout his life, was known as a really honorable person, um, and you know, I can't find any, any sources that have anything bad to say about him. Even animal rights activists tend to like Jim Corbett because he was a conservationist, and he was, you know, while he only, for the most part, he only decided to tackle and kill man-eating animals, um, you know, there was there were a couple that weren't necessarily ordained uh, man-eaters that he did take out, but for the most part, he, yeah, he only killed animals that had already taken human life. Um, he, was a, he was a conservationist, and he warned uh, constantly, uh, you know, frequently about the dangers of habitat loss and hunting, um, which, by the way, uh, interestingly, you know, when we talk about these animals, I say it all the time, it often turns out that the reason the tiger is hunting people is because of a, you know, an injury that was caused them by a person. So they were shot uh, in the in the leg and they can't run fast. They were shot in the mouth, and they, so they can't eat right, and so they've turned to humans, which is an easier prey. But the cub that he killed in today's episode that we covered uh, was not injured in any way before its death. This was a case of a tiger being raised to hunt humans. It was a it was a it was a born and bred man-eater. Uh, we will find out next week what happened to its mother and if uh, it had a similar fate in terms of being attacked by humans and it's had to resort to killing humans or if it itself was, uh, you know, I hesitate to use the word evil, but was it an evil tiger who was just born that way, who liked hunting humans for the sport of it? We will find out all that next week, but for now, we're going to take a little break, guys, and we will be back with the rest of the episode with a scratch of the day, with a beastly biography, and with some trivia, so stay tuned, let's listen to some music now, and perhaps, hey, I don't know, maybe even a little message. Nope. 
no messages this week. Uh, if you're a sponsor and you'd like to give me free money, you, you can totally do that. Uh, but no, we are going to continue on now with the rest of our episodes, starting with one of my favorite things in the entire world. You guys know what time it is. It's time for the scratch of the day. That was a little lion scratch. So the scratch of the day, as you are aware, guys, it is the segment of the show where we uh, go through some news stories regarding man-eating animals, animal attacks, animal-human confrontation, and we read through those together. We've got three really interesting stories today, starting with one from the Washington Post. This was all through the news in the US, uh, I believe, this week. Mountain lion attacks a tourist in a pool at Colorado Vacation Rental. The visitor suffered scratches on his head before the predator fled to high ground. So we're going to read this story. It's by Andrea Sachs. Thanks, Andrea, for writing a story for us. There's a pretty picture of a, of a mountain lion there. Okay, so the article reads, On Saturday night, a couple vacationing in central Colorado were soaking in a hot spring-fed pool when they noticed a dark shape descending a staircase at their rental property. Under the faint starlight, they thought the animal was a dog. But the events that unfolded proved them wrong. The intruder was a mountain lion, and a curious one at that. Sean Shepard, an area wildlife manager with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, met with the couple after the incident at Chaffee Chaffee? I think it's Chaffee. Chaffee County, and confirmed that a big cat had approached them and pawed the man's head. When the visitor pulled away, Shepard said the lion instinctively flexed its claws, much like a house cat does when it tires of its owner's attention. <laughs> oh, I can relate to that, can't I, Birdie? My girlfriend's cat, I guess it's our cat, is sitting right there looking at me right now. Fucking hates me, wow. <laughs> the travelers, who are outdoorsy and familiar with wildlife deterrent practices, screamed to let the, the predator know they were humans and not prey. They shined a flashlight at it and splashed water. The ruckus worked. The mountain lion moved away to a hillside perch where it observed the pair before they returned to the house. Their actions deflected the mountain lion, Shepard said. The man suffered several superficial scratches on his head and did not seek medical attention. I don't want to minimize his injuries, Shepard said. He was certainly scraped up. The visitors preferred to keep the matter private, though Shepard declined, uh, and through Shepard declined interviews. Mountain lion attacks are rare. In Colorado, the last dangerous interaction occurred on February 27th, according to Colorado Parks and Wildlife. <clears throat> the agency has documented about two dozen attacks since 1990. The Sacramento-based Mountain Lion Foundation said there have been less than a dozen fatalities in North America in more than a century. The organization estimates that 2,500 to 3,000 mountain lions reside in Colorado, and the U.S.'s population does not exceed 30,000. People love to live in and visit Colorado for the chance of seeing wildlife from a distance, said J. Brent Lyles, executive director of the Mountain Lion Foundation. This encounter was obviously not the kind you hope for. While it is a rare occurrence, mountain lions are not infallible and can make, uh, make mistakes. To avoid a confrontation, Shepard advises people to stay alert during these lions' most active times, dusk when they hunt, and dawn. The encounter took place at around 8.15pm. 
The predators follow the movements of their food source. In Colorado, the deer are still grazing in their winter ranges, but will descend to a lower ground once the area sprouts green. Shepard said on the night of the incident, they found two deer tucked under a, res a residential deck. The next day, they noticed about 10 to 15 deer in the area. The rental house was also near a creek, which he said is how wild animals move. When choosing a rental in a mountain lion habitat, the Mountain Lion Foundation recommends that vacationers look for properties with fencing and motion-activated lights, plus hot tubs and patios with minimal vegetation. In addition, guests should not feed deer or small mammals, or allow their pets to roam off-leash. Essentially, anywhere in the West that we are hanging outside, are, we are in lion territory, and often also in bear and coyote territory, said Gowan Bassett. Uh, sorry, Batist, the Foundation's Coexistence Coordinator. Planning for coexistence is an important part of home and landscape design. If you come into close contact with a mountain lion, slowly walk away, but never run. The swift movement can activate their prey instincts. Also, make a scene. If a case of mistaken identity does happen, make yourself look as large as possible. Using your voice, lights, water, or, or physicality, fighting back can be a highly effective method, Batiste said. Lions really don't want to tangle with humans. In Colorado, a report, uh, sorry, in Colorado, report a mountain lion encounter to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife during business hours. Uh, or I guess email them, I don't know. Or contact the Colorado State Police or local Sheriff's Department day or night. Because Saturday's encounter was more serious than just a sighting, the CPW staff set a trap. They also searched for a caged deer. To deter the predator from returning, returning, they will typically remove the dead animal that the lion has dragged to a tree and camouflage with woody debris. Shepard said that they checked the trap twice a day, in the morning, between 9 and 10 p.m. The agency will remove the equipment soon to avoid ensnaring other critters. If they do capture the lion that manhandled the visitor, the agency will transplant or euthanize it. For safety, we err on the side of humans, he conceded. Since the incident, the agency has requested no complaint, has received no complaints of trespassing mountain lions. There you go. A really well-written article there. Thank you. I think that was the Washington Post. Thank you very much. Uh, re yeah, really interesting story. That guy got very lucky. Um, I get like scratched by my house cat quite a lot, and it hurts, man. Like it's not, it's not nothing. It's like one of those paper cuts. They just they continue to hurt all the time. Um, so I can't imagine what it would be like to be scratched on the top of your head by a, uh, by a mountain lion. I also, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm picturing this, like, dude to be, like, uh, bald. <laughs> I don't know, I just, every time I hear about vacationing boomers, I just imagine the guy's old. Anyway, we're going to talk about another story now, um, less entertaining, or I guess, you know, less, uh, less lighthearted, perhaps. Uh, this is a story that is quite sad. Um, I don't know if a woman has died, but a monkey has died. So we're going to listen to this. I'll read this story from Newsweek. Pet monkey shot dead after attacking woman. Here we go. A monkey that attacked a woman in her front yard, pulling out her hair and ripping her ear in half, has been shot dead by a family member. I'm going to guess this story is in Oklahoma. <laughs> That's my guess because those people have no laws on what animals you can keep. The woman, Brittany Parker, was in her house in Dixon, Oklahoma. Fuck yeah, dude. I'm good at this. Hell yeah. You know how, like, Florida is America's toilet where they talk like, oh, like, something shitty happened? Was it Florida? My feeling is like, oh, a shitty animal thing happened? 
was it Oklahoma? And I more often than not, I'm, I'm not wrong. Yeah. Okay, back to this poor woman who had her fucking ear ripped off. Okay, the woman, Brittany Parker, was in her house in Dixon, Oklahoma, when she spotted a monkey on her porch attempting to get inside the house. She called the police when the monkey became aggressive, the animal ripping off part of her door as she attempted to keep it out. By the time police arrived, the monkey had calmed down, so Parker left the house to greet the officers. Bad move. Suddenly, the monkey attacked. He jumped him on my back and landed on my head. Wait, is Oklahoma in the South? Would that be more of a, like, a Southern accent? He jumped up on my back and landed on my head. Yeah, that's good. Parker told local news channel KOKH, he started grabbing handfuls of hair and just ripped it out. He ripped my ear almost completely off my head. The World Health Organization data shows that monkey bites make up between 2 and 21% of animal bite injuries, but monkeys usually only attack when they feel threatened or misread body language or facial expressions as aggression. Captive primates have been responsible for one death and injuring more than 280 people since 1990, according to the animal rights group, uh, animal rights group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, resulting in the deaths of 50 of the primates. After it attacked Parker, the monkey ran away, but was shot dead by one of her family members. Yes. Um, I'll just... Little little sidebar here. Um, we remember talking about, like, early in the podcast, uh, the story of Travis the chimpanzee, which I have a really close connection to, because I um, I actually played... This is... It, if you don't know the show, and you don't know me, this is going to sound weird, but I actually... I played Travis the chimpanzee in a play last year. Uh, but we, it was called Trevor, uh, it was like a sort of semi-fictionalized version of what happened in that story, um, and I, I won an acting award for it, actually, thank you for asking, very, I always bring it up, <laughs> I've got a little award now, I can kill myself, anyway, um, yeah, but, so I have a little bit of a connection to that story, we remember that, but yeah, the US, man, um, monkeys and, and primates are, like, not to be trifled with, I imagine that of these, like, um, you know, 280 people that have been injured, uh, since 1990, uh, chimpanzees are probably, like, a large majority of them. Monkeys are scary, dangerous, but they're not, you know, th at that level, so, um, but yeah, this monkey obviously was crazy, so, um, as we were looking for the primate, two shots were fired, Dixon Police Chief Tim Duncan told KOKH, the shots came from the area of the victim's residence, officers went back into the house and found a family member of the victim shot and killed the primate, Ah. Oh. America, this is what the second the Second Amendment is for. This is what the founding fathers founders meant. All citizens have the right to bear arms so they can kill monkeys. Parker was taken to Mercy Hospital in Ardmore, and later the OU uh, Oklahoma, I guess OU. Okay, there's no way that the Oklahoma acronym would be OU, right? I would have thought it would be OK, as in I live in Oklahoma, and it's OK. Uh, anyway, and later, OU Medical Trauma Center in Oklahoma City for treatment of her injuries and to receive a rabies shot. Yeah, definitely do that. She will need plastic surgery on her ear and told KOKH she cannot work as a result of her injury. Uh, I wonder what her job was. Um, maybe she was a, uh, uh, a bad, I can't think of a bad joke. She works at a call center. No, that's mean. She tests Bluetooth headsets. Rude. I'm so mean to this person. I'm sorry. The monkey was said to residents to be a pet of a neighbor. Ah, the plot thickens. One local uploaded a video of the monkey on their own porch to TikTok, which shows the monkey lunging at them when they open the door. 
In a follow-up video, the man shows the police at the scene and describes how the monkey had bitten off some of the woman's ear. Ew. Here we go. This is where things get really silly. Pet monkeys are legal in Oklahoma, with no permits being required to keep one as a pet in the state because primates are considered domestic animals. What the fuck, Oklahoma? Other species... Oh my god. Other species classified as... This is crazy! Other species classified as domestic in Oklahoma and therefore are available to own without a permit include zebras, camels, and kangaroos! I live in Australia! You cannot have a kangaroo as a pet here. That is wild. That is crazy. Parker is concerned for the safety of other living, other, others living near someone who owns a monkey. Yeah, fair enough. I think there needs to be some type of law that says you need to have some kind of training as well as like a certificate to even hold these type of animals, Parker told local news KX11 or 11. She also is fearful for the safety of her own children. Yeah, that's fair. My son loves to play outside. Parker told KOKH, Do I let my child go outside and play? Do I worry every time we step outside if we're going to be attacked by a monkey? It is very traumatizing. It is very scary. I think that Parker has a really good point there. I think you probably should have some sort of training or certificate to have a monkey. I, better idea. How about you're just not allowed to have a pet monkey? Anyway, America, freedom, I guess. I don't know. What do I know? I'm a, I'm a cock Australian who doesn't have freedom. Remember that time we were all in internment camps during COVID, guys? I don't remember that happening, but if I, I watched Fox News and apparently it did. Um, okay. Ooh, political. Political today. Wow. Have I just, maybe I'm just cranky and I just don't give a shit, but yeah. Freedom. America. Trump is, Trump won. I don't know. Is he ever going to get arrested, do you guys think? I don't know. I was waiting all day Tuesday for him to get arrested, and it just didn't happen. Our final story in the Scratch of the Day segment from the New York Post, which is, you know, irreparable. I actually don't know if the New York Post is reputable. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm already looking at a video here, and it's funny. Hungry crocodile invades picnic, steals cooler. Okay, cooler. Uh, if you're in Australia, we call that an esky, which is a better name. An esky. Oh, wow. I love these stories where they start off with a pun. Ready? He just says here, <clears throat> It was a refrigerator. <laughs> wow. Go home, Ben Cost. You're done. You, you, you just made your quota for the week of shitty puns. As if having ants invade your picnic wasn't bad enough, footage captured the alarming moment a thieving crocodile crashed a South African safari group's alfresco meal and made off with their drinks cooler. Uh, I think this is a guy South African. Let's do a South African voice. Um, I've got to drop into it. Um, I'm South African and I have done nothing wrong. That is pretty good. Okay. We were trying to have a picnic here when this guy just came out of the water, claims victim David Walhulter in the clip, which was uploaded to Facebook's latest sightings, where it's reached more than 160,000 views. The reptilian pilfering occurred while Wolf Hauer and Rowena Mould, 70 years old, oh, they're so old, they're cute, was, were out spotting game at the Ritzput Game Reserve in Greater Kruger National Air Park area. The pair had reportedly just seen a cheetah, ooh, cool, and were sitting down to picnic lunch. Sorry, I'm just going to pause here. Um, I don't know if I'm crazy, but if I'm out and about and I see a fucking cheetah in the wild, my instinct isn't to sit down and have a picnic lunch. That's fine. Okay, anyway, they sat down to have a picnic lunch when a massive crocodile emerged from a nearby body of water and decided to join the party. 
in the clip, the bald, the cold-blooded chiller. Oh, God. Oh, I see what he's done there. Instead of cold-blooded killer, he's a cold-blooded chiller. Because he, get it? Because he stole the cooler. Ugh. The cold-blooded chiller could be seen relaxing next to the, a lavish food spread in front of their safari truck. The picnicker was quick to chastise the Croptilian interloper, declaring, This is not playing cricket. Go back into the water. Don't know what cricket has to do with it. Oh, he's cute. He's not very big at all. He's eating a little bread roll. Looks like a really good picnic. Was he? He's got some carrots there, some uh, boiled eggs, it looks like. A chicken. A pear? That's, or an avocado? I don't know. This looks like a nice spread. And that's a lot of food. That's, that's more than enough food. Give the gator, give the croc some butter. The camera then panned to the safari goers who took refuge in their jeep, a somewhat safe distance away from the scaly picnic pillager. Fortunately, in this case, humans didn't appear to be the object of the croc's desires. In the assuming video, in the ensuing frames, I'm sorry, the crocodile could be seen lunging into the water, clutching a blue drink cooler that had reportedly commandeered. It had God. It had reportedly commandeered from the picnic. This is not very gentlemanly behavior," spluttered Wall Hunter, who described how the croc had upended the icebox during its theft, strewing wine bottles everywhere. Ah, uh, drunk, drunk crocodile. That's a new idea for like an ABC Kids uh, cartoon. Just when the clip couldn't get any more ludicrous, a second croc lunged at the cooler in the water, prompting the two apex predators to engage in a tug of war as if fighting over a zebra's carcass. Oh, jeez. That's my South African jeez. Oh, jeez, <laughs> claimed Wall Hunter of the frightening spectacle. Now there's two crocs on it. <laughs> His accent's getting really fucked. Uh, it's not racist, though, because you can be South African and white. I'm doing a white South African accent here. Don't fucking tweet at me. I don't have Twitter. While this instance of interspecies gift-giving was involuntary, Kruger National Park warns visitors against purposefully feeding the refuge's critters for fears they could become habituated to people. If animals, oh, I've lost it. If animals are fed, they will lose their natural fear of humans and could become aggressive. That my accent is going out the door. The park writes on its website. Uh, ooh, pictures. That is perhaps especially important in the case of the Nile crocodile, which is the world's second largest reptile, capable of growing more than 20 feet long and weighing as much as 2,000 pounds. While smaller than the saltwater crocodile, this known man-eater is responsible for fatal attacks on humans, killing some 300 people per year. In April 2022, a Zimbabwe fisherman narrowly escaped with his life after he was mauled by four crocodiles and dragged underwater in a death roll. There you go. Wild. Wild stuff. I think picnics are pretty shit anyway. Uh, the best of times, but... Yeah. Do not touch my cooler, crocodile. I have done nothing to you, crocodile. Please give it back. Give me back the cooler. Give it back to me. I want to have my one coolers. Okay. I'm done. I'm done now. Uh, that was our Scratch of the Day segment. Clap it out. Let's clap it out. Clap for the animals. Clap for the monkeys. And then how about a clap for me? I guess not. Uh, we are moving on now to our killer profile. Let's go on to our beastly biography. Ooh. Today's beastly biography is the African wild dog, an animal we have not talked about on the podcast before, so let's just get into it. Here is some information about the African wild dog. 
The African wild dog, also known as the African painted dog and the African hunting dog, is a wild canine species which is native to sub-Saharan Africa. It is the largest wild canine in Africa and the only extant member of the genus uh, Lycaon, Ly which is distinguished from Canis by... De by Oh God! By dentian, highly specialized for a hypercarnivorous diet and by a lack of dew claws. I don't know what that means. It is estimated that about 6,600 adults, including 1,400 mature individuals, live in 39 subpopulations that are all threatened by habitat fragmentation, human persecution, and outbreaks of disease. As the largest subpopulation probably encompasses more, uh, fewer than 250 individuals, the African wild dog has been listed as endangered on the IUCN Red List since 1990. This species is specialized dinurial hunter of antelopes, which it catches by chasing them to exhaustion. Its natural enemies are lions and spotted hyenas. The former will kill the dogs where possible, whilst hyenas are frequent kleptoparasites. Interesting. What is that? Let's let's Google it, guys. This is the like this is the joy of live podcasting. Not live, but like I can search things live. Kleptoparatism. It's a feeding strategy. Uh what is it? Uh, it's, uh, it's a form of feeding in which one animal deliberately takes food from another. Oh, so you're just stealing shit. The strategy is an evolutionary stable when stealing is less costly than direct feeding, which can mean when food is scarce or victims are abundant. Interesting. There you go. Bunch basically being a little asshole. Like other canids, the African wild dog regurgitates food for its young. Yuck. But also extends this action to adults. As Ew! That's gross, as a central part of the pack's social life. Me and my boys do that too at parties. The young are allowed to feed first on the carcass. Although not as prominent in African folklore or culture as other African carnivores like lions and leopards and cheetahs, it has been respected in several hunting-gatherer societies, particularly those of pre-dynastic Egyptians and the San people. So as we heard, the population size is 6,600 individuals, which does make it endangered. Uh, its lifespan is between 10 to 12 years. It can length its length can be up to 117 centimeters and it weighs between 18 and 36 kilograms on land its top speed is 66 kilometers per hour and these are the countries in which the african wild dog resides <clears throat> angola benin botswana burka uh, God, burkina faso central african republic chad ethiopia kenya malawi mozambique nambia niger uh, Senga, senegal Senegal, South Africa, South Sudan, Sudan, Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Its diet. The African wild dog is highly specialized for a carnivorous diet. They hunt gazelles and other antelopes, warthogs, wildebeest, and, other, and their calves, ostriches, and calves of other African animals, such as buffalo. They also hunt smaller prey, such as dick dick. <laughs> dick dick. <laughs> dick dick. I know it's just an animal, but like... <laughs> Dick dick. Hares, spring hares, insects, birds, and cane rats. African wild dogs rarely scavenge, but have on occasion been observed to appropriate carcasses from us, other spotted hyenas, leopards, cheetahs, and lions, as well as animals caught in snares. Now, its man-eater status I've put as low. It, 
rarely, rarely, rarely attacks people, um, but it can steal food from them, uh, if you're picnicking, I guess, like those other people in the scratch of the day, um, but yeah, I do think that if you got in between a pack of wild African dogs, uh, and what they needed, you could be in some significant danger, so I, they are not a no threat at all, they are low. One day I'm gonna read out the, uh, the man-eater status, so we've got a full understanding. I think what it would go is, right, you've got no threat, low threat, moderate threat, like high threat, and then like very high threat, yeah? We'll go through and we'll list those later. Um, would you like some fun facts? Some fun facts for kids? For, okay, good, yay! Color variation of this species is extreme. It may serve in visual identification as African wild dogs can recognize each other at distances of 50 to 100 meters away. African wild dogs are highly successful hunters. Hunting success varies with prey type, vegetation cover, and pack size, but African wild dogs tend to be very successful, often with greater than 60% of their chases ending in a kill, sometimes up to 90%. This is much higher than that of a lion, which is between 27 to 30%, and the hyena, which is between 25 to 30%, success rates tend to be. But African wild dogs commonly lose their successful kills to these two large predators. In East Africa, African wild dogs in packs of 17 to 43 individuals eat 1.7 kilograms of meat per dog on an average day. That's a lot of meat. That's a lot of meat. That's a lot of meat, boys. African wild dogs are very intelligent hunters. They have been observed rallying before they set out to hunt. Not every rally results in a departure, but departures become more likely when more individual dogs quote-unquote sneeze. These sneezes, this is adorable, are characterized by a short, sharp exhale through the nostrils. Like this. That's, I'm sneezing. You hear that? Gross. Maybe cut that part out, James. That's yucky. Uh, when members of a dominant mating pair sneeze first, the group is much more likely to depart. If a dominant dog initiates around three sneezes, <laughs> guarantee departure. When less dominant dogs sneeze first, if enough others sneeze also, about ten, ten dogs, not ten sneezes, uh, then the group will go hunting. There you go. Some interesting information about your African wild dog. As always, I encourage you to do your own research and look into these animals, particularly since podcasting is such a visual medium. It would be fantastic if you could go and, uh, yeah, have a look for yourself what they would be. Another idea I've just had now, literally on the fly, is that maybe going forward, starting next week, um, when we do the little Instagram post, I'll do a few photos and I'll also spotlight the photo of the um, killer profile, or the, the beastly biography. That's fun. Isn't that fun? Speaking of fun, guys, it's time for Man Eaters Trivia. Ooh, I'm excited. I love this bit. Yay! I'm so happy today, guys. Episode 50. We're nearly done. Can you believe episode 50 is nearly over? What's going to happen next? Episode 51, probably. Okay. Man Eaters Trivia. Last week's question. So last week, I asked you this question. Nearly all wild lions live in Africa, but one small population exists elsewhere. Where does this population live? A. China B. Russia C. Indonesia or D. India I asked you this on Instagram and I would say about 75% of you got it right. The correct answer is, of course, D. India in the wild, there are two formally recognized lion subspecies. The African lion is found in Africa, south of the Sahara Desert. The Asiatic lion 
exists in one small population around the Gir Forest National Park in western India. Wild lions in the West and Central Africa are more closely related to these Asiatic lions than in India than those found in Southern and East Africa. Isn't that interesting? So genetically, uh, the Asia lions and these ones in uh, West and Central Africa, they're more commonly related or more closely related than the rest of the lions in Africa. It's just like people, you know, we're all one happy family. Race is a lie. Okay, this week's question, are you ready? It's a good one. It's a good one. And if you've listened to episodes of this show before, you should be able to get this one pretty easily. And as always, if you want to vote and see the answer early, before the next episode comes up, you can go to our Instagram and uh, you can vote on the uh, the question, the, the trivia of the week, uh, on the Instagram poll and see how you went. So, here's the question. In 1945, during World War II, an American warship was hit by a torpedo and hundreds of men were eaten by sharks over the course of several days. What was the name of the ship? Was it A, the USS Denver? Was it B, the USS Alabama? Was it C, the USS Indianapolis? Or D, was it the USS Albany? I'll read that again. In 1945, during World War II, an American warship was hit by a torpedo, and hundreds of men were eaten by sharks over the course of several days. What was the name of the ship that was sunk? The USS Denver, the USS Alabama, the USS Indianapolis, or the USS Albany? You can hold on to your questions for next week, and you will find out the answer, or you can go onto the Instagram, and you can vote there and find out a little early. Uh, guys, I'm going to end our episode there. Thank you so goddamn much. I really appreciate you so much. Episode 50. 50 in the can. Wacky Dacky Day. And I, th- I feel like this was a good episode. You should listen to this episode again. Don't listen to the other ones, because they're kind of shitty. But this one was really good. Um, Plugs. What do I want to plug to you? Yes, last week on Monday in Australia, I uh, was lucky to be a guest on The Songs We Share, a radio program hosted by a friend of the show, uh, Carl Gregory. Had a fantastic time. If you'd like to listen to that, um, that you can for the next five weeks, they keep those episodes recorded as a kind of little podcast thing on their website. So go to 2NURFM and search for Songs We Share. I'm sure you'll be able to find it on there. It will only be there for five weeks. Uh, so if you do want to listen to me on that show, uh, give it, definitely do it. Give it a go. Uh, it's a great format that Carl's come up with. He basically gives you prompts and he asks you to pick songs that answer those prompts. And he basically interviews you about your uh, relationship with music and those songs and what they make you think about and what they make you feel. And it's a real good time. So definitely go check that out. I am on that show again this week on Monday, which I think is by the time this episode comes out will be tomorrow. Monday the 20... Oh, God, what will it be? 20... Let me... Hold on. Hold the fuck on. Yeah, Wednesday the... Monday the 27th uh, from 8pm to 10pm on 2NURFM's Songs We Share this Monday again. So if you are in the local area uh, in Newcastle, New South Wales, I think you can even get it closer to Sydney. I'm not sure. But you can listen live to that story, uh, to that that show. We had a great time. I really, really enjoyed being on that show with Carl. He's a a great broadcaster. And um, yeah, if you want to hear more of Carl's stuff, you should listen to that um, regularly. Like I said, they put the episodes up for five weeks at a time on their website. So go and do that. Go listen to their other episodes as well. Carl's a good friend and a former lover. I mean, a former roommate. Um, oh God, what have I just admitted to everyone? That'll be it today, guys. Before you go, I need you to do something for me, please, pretty please. It's a call to action. Yeah, 50 episodes. We've been doing the show for 50 episodes for like 
going on two years, right? And we've had the Instagram for like a good portion of that time. And I'm looking at my the Instagram right now, and we only have 111 followers. And that that's speaking of true crime, that's a true crime right there. What do you? Get, get, hey, hey, bitch! I'm talking to you. Get on Instagram and search up Man Eaters Podcast and follow the thing. Do it now. Do it now. And I'll give you a little kiss. I won't do that, but um, and I won't follow you back either. But you'll be able to check out all the uh, you know episode um, what do I call it? Episode notices that go up. Basically, every time I put an episode up, there's a little graphic. It's so pretty. Uh, and also just a bunch of other information. And it's a great way to get in touch. I get a lot of people sending me messages through Instagram, um, requesting stories, requesting all that kind of stuff. It's kind of become my like favorite way to interact with this little man eaters community um so definitely jump on there and uh, and give that a give us a follow give us a follow please i'm begging you there's no reason you shouldn't be doing it right now guys take your phone out i'm waiting take your phone out right now i'm going to talk you through it step one phone out of pocket okay good step two unlock the phone with your face or your fingerprint or your pin if you're old school okay step three open up instagram yeah, I did it. It's, if you don't know what Instagram is, it's a little pink thing. Click it. Okay. Click the little magnifying glass. Did that. Step. I've, I've lost track. Seven. Okay. Type man it is podcast. Very good. I'm, I'm just searching myself, so it's not going to come up. Oh, it did. Step um, 14. Click follow. There's no other steps. That's it. Step 17, be happy. Guys, that'll do it. Thank you so much for joining us on our 50th episode of Man Is. I cannot believe it. Holy toboli. Uh, uh, fuck. Jesus. Oh, God. It's, gone. It's, it's, it's been a good time. It's going to continue being a good time. Thank you for being you. You're a beautiful human. I love your bum. And as always, my friends, please stay safe. Because as we've learned, it's the jungle out there. 50 episodes trumpets yeah alright have a good day everyone